The lights are going out all over Europe. Will somebody please put a euro in the meter? I'm Peter Collins. Welcome back to Romaniacs, the podcast that iTunes reviewer Captain Dilbert described as only for the EU Kool-Aid drinkers. Hmm. Most refreshing. (laughs) Of course, we in the metropolitan elite prefer a sophisticated burgundy or at least a can of full-fat pre-regulation iron brew. But it's good to have you on board as a listener, Nigel. With us today, we have the core members of our EU negotiation team. First of all, Naomi Smith, who's Executive Director of Campaigns at London First, a former Lib Dem parliamentary candidate and a housing policy wonk. Hello, Naomi. Do you mind being called a wonk? It sounds a bit rude. Well, and also because I'm not great on housing policy, more on housing campaigns. But yes, uh, don't don't ask me too much detail about housing policy. Another of our iTunes reviewers said you were we were pure Lib Dem and Green Party propaganda. Does that sound okay to you? Um, well, a couple of things on this. First of all, <laughs> I think most people involved in this podcast are Labour Party members. Uh, I am. Well, a few exceptions. It's really only Dorian, isn't it? And I mean, Dor- I think Dorian. Oh no, yeah, these they're, lot they're, as well. Yeah, and we've me. definitely had more Labour. <laughs> politicians on I think than Lib Dem will certainly equal number maybe I didn't realise I was surrounded in this room by Labour people by the way I I profess my undying love for Ruth Davidson as you know this this is true I am Tory curious (laughs) Ruth Davidson but um, the the Lib Dems and the Greens are the only two parties that have got a very firm policy commitment to stop Brexit so as Romaniacs Mm. I think we ought to be proud of our Green and and Lib Mm. Dem propagandists I think they're all dreadful if that helps. <laughs> uh, that, that was the voice of Ian Dunn, editor of politics.co.uk, fresh from his appearance on our companion podcast, Big Mouth. Hello, Ian. Oh, hello, yes. That was, that I understand fun. you revi- reviewed on the other podcast, Sky's Romans in Britain, Epic Britannia. Mm. Is there a Brexit angle to it? Or well, there's the rather obvious, you know, <laughs> heavily disadvantageous negotiating conditions <laughs> structured by continental powers. But, but apart from that, I mean, I can't see anything that you'd read into it at all. Oh, OK, right. Good. That's that settled then. Uh, we have a very special guest this week. Professor A.C. Grayling is a noted philosopher. He's master of the New College of the Humanities here in London. And he's an even more dogged Romaniac than the rest of us on the show. <laughs> Professor Grayling recently described David Cameron's EU referendum as one of the stupidest and most destructive acts in the UK's history. <laughs> I think we have a consensus on that one. Well, I was putting it mildly. Indeed, yes. His frantic Twitter activity on behalf of Remain makes you wonder how he finds the time to teach. And if you're interested, it's at AC Grayling with no dots. He's looking increasingly like the intellectual figurehead of the whole Remain machine. Hello, Professor Grayling, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. When people tell me that they follow me on Twitter, I say, my God, that must keep you busy. (laughs) (laughs) So which do you, of all the terms for describing ourselves, do you prefer? Remainer, Remaniac, Resistance, presumably not Ramona. Which is your preferred? All those things and more. Okay, that's good. Well, some people say we should drop all of this stuff about, you know, being the resistance and calling ourselves proudly saboteurs and so on. The argument is that it was useful when we were sort of getting over the shock of the result and sort of trying to compose ourselves, but now maybe we should be using language that subtly gets across that we're the growing and sensible majority. Do you, do you, do you buy that idea? Well, I do to some extent, uh, because I think we are the sensible and growing majority. But I also think that once the dust has settled on Brexit, once we stopped it and, and sanity has started to creep back in, There is a big job of work to be done, and that is that we have to look at our political order, our government order, and our constitution in this country, because one thing that Brexit really has done is it's stripped the lid off the fact that we've got a very dysfunctional order here, and that means that we are still going to have to be resisting and being some kind of EACs anyway, perhaps, you know, political reform EACs or something. 
Okay, well, let's let's talk about that later in the program. We will be having a, a more detailed prof- uh, chat with Professor Grayling, but um, we'll also be talking about the week's news first, including that uh, apparent big shift in favour of a second referendum, the continuing backstage plotting in the Tory party as the Brexiters lose patience with Theresa May, and Jeremy Corbyn's latest baby steps towards giving Labour voters the Brexit policy that they want. But first, let's hear some quick messages from Naomi. Preparations are continuing apace for the first Romaniacs Live in central London on Thursday the 22nd of February. We're trying to decide whether Ian, Roz, Peter and Dorian should emerge on stage from transparent pods in traditional (laughs) Spinal Tap style. The first Romaniacs Live sold out in just one weekend and our Patreon backers got the lion's share of those tickets. But we will be doing more even one that might include me, and the best way to ensure that you get tickets is to become a Patreon backer yourself, like me. Patreon backers get first dibs on tickets plus stylish Romaniacs merch, the t-shirts, mugs and bags. You can find out more at romaniacs.com and if you're coming to Romaniacs Live, we look forward to seeing you there at the Phoenix, Cavendish Square, near Oxford Circus, in the heart of the Metropolitan Bubble. For this week's Romaniacs, we're delighted to have the support of HelloFresh, makers of easy-to-use recipe kits that save you valuable time and solve your dinner dilemmas. Every HelloFresh box contains pre-portioned, fresh ingredients and easy-to-follow step-by-step recipes, and it's all delivered chill-packed to your door on a day that suits you. As a Romaniacs listener, you can get 50% off your first two HelloFresh boxes when you use the promo code Romain. If you choose the veggie box like I would do, uh, you'll get brilliant dishes like Thai mesamin rice with roasted aubergine and chestnut mushrooms or Mexican spice squash with avocado and black bean salsa and quinoa. It doesn't get much more liberal elite than that. <laughs> uh, but what about uh, carnists and meat eaters like our producer, Andrew? Well, I'm extremely fussy about my meat uh, and the dishes are really good. They're always exciting. There's a, a fantastic Middle Eastern beef stew with charred courgette and couscous. But what I like most about it is that the dishes are always imaginative. So there's an orange glazed duck with crushed potato, green beans and roasted tomato. That's the stuff you'd never think to cook in midweek. But they make it easy. They bring it to you when you need it. And it really makes a difference to, to your week, particularly to your morale in a difficult week. So try HelloFresh with 50% off your first two boxes by visiting hellofresh.co.uk and using the code REMAIN and start spending less time planning meals and more time enjoying them. That's hellofresh.co.uk and the promo code is REMAIN. Now, have we got Brexit news for you? Unfortunately, yes. First, a report from our hate-to-say-we-told-you-so desk, namely the BuzzFeed leak of the latest Brexit impacts assessment, which is pretty devastating regarding our economic prospects under any flavour of Brexit. The paper is actually by DEXEU, the Department for Exiting the EU itself. It has the gripping title of EU Exit Analysis Cross Whitehall Briefing, and it looked at three plausible scenarios post-Brexit, all of which, by the way, assume that we will get some sort of a trade deal with America. First of all, under David Davis's preferred um, comprehensive free trade agreement with the EU, Britain's economy would grow by 5% less cumulatively over 15 years compared with current pre-Brexit forecasts. If we fall out of the EU with no deal and we have to trade under minimal World Trade Organization rules, we'd be down 8% over that period. And even with the softest Brexit in which Britain stays in the European economic area and thus has market single market access, we'd still be down 2% over that period. And there's a great line in the BuzzFeed story asked why the Prime Minister was not making this analysis public. A Dexu source told BuzzFeed News because it's embarrassing. <laughs> to the surprise of nobody, 
Ian Duncan Smith told the Today programme the paper should be taken with a pinch of salt because almost every forecast on Brexit has been wrong. Following precisely the same logic, I completely ignored the forecast that today would be very cold and wet and came out of the house in a bikini. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, is this impact assessment, what, what we're told in it, in any way a surprise? No, it's pretty much in line with with what we thought. It's not too far out from the Treasury stuff from before the referendum. Um, It's a little bit bit more modest than some of the Treasury proposals, but not on the WTO, actually. I think the Treasury put WTO at 7.5. It actually seems to have risen slightly, our evaluations of of just how damaging that would be. So this seems to be pretty pretty much par from the course for us. Um, The only surprising thing about it, really, is that where it comes from, which is that this is the first time this work has been done by a Brexit government before it was being done by a government that was supporting Remain. It's done, as you say, I mean, you know, the Brexit department was the one presenting it. I I think they're dragging in information from all the various departments. And I think that's probably created around the cabinet office, which even though that sounds like a very boring sort of technical point, of course, that is very important political ammunition for the Brexters because they get to say that the Cabinet Office ruled by Remainers, the Treasury ruled by the Remainers as if these little Remainer alcoves. However, the fact that it's being put together by DEXEU and that it is designed to be presented to ministers with their own chief economists there kind of makes it watertight in terms of this is a Brexit document. This is by the people who are doing it. And that alone is the thing that makes it different. The actual data itself, we, we've known for quite a long time now. I suppose some people might say, oh, well, it's only 2% or 6%, or 8% or whatever over 15 years. It's not very much. I mean, is it really going to have that much impact? Two percent of of your GDP is a huge amount to lose, and to lo- I mean to, to try and replicate that is very very difficult indeed. So even in the lightest possible interpretation of this vote, we are looking at something that would be very very damaging to the British economy without any real ideas of how we would replicate that number sort of further on. I suppose a good way of putting that uh, is that if the government had a new policy which had an analysis saying that the economy would be two percent bigger or 6% bigger or 8% bigger over 15 years, they would be screaming from the rooftop saying, look at this wonderful policy, we must do it. Mm. Uh, therefore, it is important, I guess. And 2%, it may not sound to you know people that aren't really familiar with, with what GDP means as, as very much, but it's actually very significant, and 2% is the lowest of the figures that the assessments put out. And w- what it means is that you've got... Two percent less produce in the country in a financial year, and that means you know less production means less people, fewer people being employed, and less employment means less cash in the market for people to buy goods, and all of that sort of uh, reduces the the production rate further, and it becomes this vicious cycle. But I think the compelling thing is this means that you're going to have to save for even longer before you can stop working. This is about your pension pot not growing at the rate that you were expecting it to, um, and and so you know I sort of think that that's more of a compelling story to tell people what this means is you know you're going to be working right up to the day you drop dead. Because what what people uh, forget is that uh, these percentages are, so to speak, compound percentages in the sense that when you get uh, increased unemployment in a a region, it starts knocking on to lots of other things. Your little local corner shop might shut down because people aren't buying stuff. And then, you know, your your community environment begins to look a bit tatty and people get more depressed and then businesses move away. And so it just gets worse and worse. When you get onto a downward spiral, it keeps going down. And that this is the this is an impact on human lives. This mm-hmm. is people. This is husbands and wives and their families. And this is their, you know, can we go away on holiday? Do we have to give up the car? This is real stuff. And so when people talk about figures and they talk about very very low numbers, they've really got to understand just what it means in 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 terms of actual experience. 
And yet the pro-Brexit um, uh, people, Ian Duncan Smith and so on, they're still plugging this line that it's project fear, it doesn't matter because they feel they feel it's worked for them before. I mean, is there any way of breaking out of that and, and getting through to people that actually this, these are important figures? Well, you know, one can focus on the rhetoric here because rhetoric does make a difference. This is project reality now. Now that these numbers have come out of Dexu itself, these are people who have been looking carefully at these uh, um, possibilities working out the projections and and you know the assumptions that they're working on are probably small c conservative ones things could be a lot worse mm. even even on the minimal uh, uh, um, projection so you know the country is holding its breath at the moment there are a lot of business people and entrepreneurs and and young people just about to leave education who were waiting to see what's going to happen and it could be in 6 months or 2 years time that things are in fact a lot worse even than we now think they might be but I think as Remain campaigners, we do need to learn the lesson and move on. People either um, dismiss it as scaremongering, as project fear, as you said, I mean, leave voters, not, not people in general, um, uh, and dismiss it. Or they do believe it and they simply don't care. I mean, you must remember that there was this YouGov poll last year showing 61% of leave voters believe significant to the damage to the economy is a price worth paying for Brexit. And nearly 40% of them were happy for a family member to lose their job. So, you know, we, we have to get on to the rhetoric stuff. You're quite right. We need to start talking about the emotional stuff, the link to the NHS, the impact that, that this slow growth would have on the sorts of things that those Leave voters do care about. You know, their pension pots, their you know, NHS, Britain's place in the world. So yeah, it was interesting, that thing about the bravado of the 61% who said, oh, you know, we'll pay any price for our great uh, aim that we've got. But of course, they were still some distance away from actually feeling it in their pockets or in their local A&E. And when that reality starts to come home, then I think that changes minds pretty quickly. Almost always in public opinion, there's a kind of tipping point um, reached and then there's a cascade effect afterwards. So I don't well, you know, be surprised to find that we're very close to that tipping point now. Um, so I think a lot of this stuff is, is certainly true of the fact that the economic arguments only get us so far, although it, it obviously needs that caveat of we don't need to go that far, given that, that things are very split down the middle at the moment. However, to me, the most important issues of what this thing did is what it did internally to the government and what it does internally to the Labour Party. To the Labour Party, it massively strengthened the hands of those who are calling on Corbyn to change his policy because they can point to this and say, look, these are the people you're supposed to represent that are going to get hit by this. Then in terms of what it does to to the government, which is already tearing itself apart, sort of almost hour by hour now, extraordinary scenes in, in Parliament, is to see someone like Steve Baker, who you're seeing basically a minister at DexEU, basically seeing a government representative discard government research that has been commissioned by the government and then attack, you know, civil servants themselves. I mean, if you look at the way the civil servants have reacted since yesterday, when he said, all forecasts are wrong, a quite genuinely insane thing for someone to have said, especially from the government benches. You really start to see the kind of tensions that that evokes. We've seen ministers now saying this has to be based on evidence. We've seen MPs on the government benches saying we have the right to see the information that is going to affect my constituents. So while there may be a limitation on how impactful this is in the public, I think when you look at what it does to the government and what it does to the internal dynamics of the Labour Party, that's a very different matter indeed. Mm.
OK, let's go on to our next news item uh, from the real economy to the Westminster bubble. Are those irreconcilable splits in the Conservative Party that we keep hearing about finally coming to the surface? Last weekend, the Times reported that because of Theresa May's weakness and the slow progress of Brexit, only a handful more Tory MPs required to reach 48, which is the number of members needed to trigger a vote of no confidence in her as party leader. Lewis Goodall of Sky News reported that Boris Johnson and Gavin Williamson are now actively working to topple her. Meanwhile, while relations between the Chancellor Philip Hammond and the Europhobes sank to their worst yet, after Hammond said the EU and UK economies would only move apart very modestly after Brexit, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the chief ideologue of the Tories' European Research Group, demanded a fundamental change in minister's tone. So this is the political equivalent of a kind of light punishment beating, <laughs> which uh, Theresa May duly disowned uh, so as to save herself from similar treatment. However, it didn't seem to make much difference. There were reports by Tuesday that prominent Conservative donors were said to be on her, so are we seeing matters coming to a head in uh, in the Tory Party? And you're in Westminster all the time. What's what's happening? Unfortunately, I am. Although I try my very best to avoid it. So uh, it's it's extraordinary the, the the ratcheting up of of the intensity of the internal problems in the Conservative Party over the last two weeks. And most extraordinary and most troubling. This is actually in a Raphael Bear piece the other day of saying this isn't as a result of challenges with the EU. This is as a result of stasis of nothing happening and people sort of looking to themselves and going. My God, man, the government has no energy. It has no ideas. It has no coherent framework as to what it would want to do with the country. This is sort of chapter one, page one of the idea of a party that needs to spend some time in opposition figuring out what the hell its purpose is. And yet there is something that stops it from doing its natural function at this stage, which would be to replace the leader. And that is the fact that no one wants her job. If you're Boris Johnson, you want to go to uni for a harder Brexit, you don't want her job because you know what the next year and a half entails. You know that this is the economic reality of what she's getting. But of course, if she was to follow that and stay signed up to EU laws and institutions, then she would lose all of you know the hard Brexiters in the party. If you're a sort of Philip Hammond, you don't want to take over now because you are going to face exactly those same choices. Nobody wants that poison chalice. So even though it is demonstrably in the party's interest for there to be change, it's in no individual's interest interest to be the person who replaces her because unless they value their principles so highly that they are willing to be hated by the party for the rest of their lives for what's going to happen over the next 12 months they are not going to want to step into her shoes and i don't really know a conservative in the parliamentary party who does value his principles or her principles so highly that they would take that degree of personal attack well i, I wonder whether it's true i mean i agree with that analysis on the whole and if there were one very thin silver lining to the whole brexit process it's the schadenfreude one feels looking at the tory party <laughs> committing suicide in public but uh, the, the the thought that there isn't anybody who would want that job i mean on the day after the election last year we were told that uh, theresa may wanted to resign straight away and she was told no she's not allowed to she's the human shield everybody's got to be lined up behind her until you know uh, times are right for somebody us take over. But I think that the people on the very, very hard right of the Conservative Party, maybe Mr. Ree Smog, or as I like to call him, mm. Ree Smog, uh, <laughs> is uh, you know, keen actually to step into those shoes because he thinks that he could just do the thing, just mm. tell everybody to 
you know, we're going to leave now. We're just going to drop out, and that's the end of it. And that, you know, might seem to him to be an opportunity, what's what's happening mm. at the moment. I mean, it's a real admixture of this miscalculation by Cameron and then this lacklustre intellect of May. And the trouble is with the Europhobes is that they're never satisfied. You know, if she throws them a bone, they want the entire cadaver. Um, when we eventually leave the EU, they'll probably say it should have happened far sooner and they want to do it all over again um, because they don't <laughs> forgive and they don't forget. Um, and, you know, it... It's the issue that has destroyed the last three Tory premiers in Thatcher, Major uh, and Cameron. And, you know, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. Um, and and I, I absolutely can see um, that, you know, uh, your point, Anthony, that, that maybe they do want to, to wield the knife right now. But another thing that's worth remembering is that the front runners don't win. Um you know, David Davis himself was supposed to succeed Howard and never thought that, you know, he would be defeated by Cameron. Uh, you know, who thought Alec Douglas, Home, Thatcher and Major would become leaders um, uh, of the Conservative Party. So it's it's more likely to be a quiet person in the wings, whether it's a, a Gavin Williamson or other, good, good that will be the one that will inherit the crown. Yeah. And of course, Major survived a leadership mm. contest. We had all this sort of stuff in, mm. in kind of, ni- you know, 94, 95. And he did that sort of walking into the Rose Garden thing, trying to look tough. And it worked, uh, you know, that um, he had um, the sort of lied loon of the era, uh, John Redwood, as his challenger. It would be Rhys Mogg or somebody this time, maybe. And, he, and you know, just because they're sort of on a roll now doesn't mean that they would win an actual um for even the first round of a, yeah. of a, of a leadership. That's right. Contest. I think that she, she also has this advantage, which, which to, to give her credit, is sort of self-created of, of the sort of disciplined vagueness that she has conducted herself with as an administration means that both sides in the Conservative Party, those who want a softer Brexit and those who want a harder one, can't really tell how things would go if she was to go. So they look at it all in this rather negative way of like, well, maybe if she goes, it'll get worse on whichever side of that debate that they are. And that sort of very thin layer of tension she's created, that specifically designed meaninglessness is actually paying pretty good dividends for her internally at the moment. Well, it has to this point. Mm. But, but I think what we're seeing is that it's getting pretty close to breaking point. Yeah. And, yeah. and the thing is, I, mean, I, think, I think Naomi is absolutely right. It's not the, the, the person uh, whose name and picture and faces up there in, in public view uh, who might inherit if the hard right does inherit. But I wonder, you know, there are a lot of people in the even in the Conservative Party who are sensible and uh, worried and don't like what's happening. There are plenty of Remainers there. And if, if things were precipitated, so if she said, well, the heck with it, or there was a, a challenge, you know, and, and the word is out that maybe there are more than 48 signatures already, but everything is done in such secrecy in uh, the 1922 committee that the person who knows the numbers can keep silent about them until the right moment or be under pressure to do so anyway. Mm. So we, we don't know what, what, what the situation is exactly at this moment, but it does look threatening uh, for her and particularly for the party. Immediately after the referendum, there was a lot of speculation in uh, among the political journalists that this meant a great realignment and a great reconfiguration of the political landscape. That hasn't happened. Tribalism has trumped everything. Uh, but, you know, maybe we could be on the cusp of seeing something really interesting. Right. Well, let's move on to our third news item, uh, moving on from the Conservative Party's warring tribes to the voters. Remember them. Support for a second referendum is surging, according to a new opinion poll. (coughs) ICM's survey for that notorious tabloid newspaper, The Guardian, (laughs) said that 47% of people would now opt for a final say on the Brexit deal against 34% who are against another vote. Now, the 47% for a final say compares with 
roughly compares with just 32% who wanted a second referendum in a sort of vaguely similar poll in December. I say vaguely similar poll because this time people were asked quite specifically whether they would have a referendum on whether or not to leave the EU at all uh, after seeing the deal. So there's no question in this thing of um, either accepting the deal or marching off with no deal. The question is, uh, do we look at the deal and accept it or do we stay in the EU altogether? And that's 47%, including presumably uh, a significant number of of Leave voters. So... um, uh, encourage, uh, there's there's a less encouraging bit in this poll, which is that uh, if people were asked to run the 2016 referendum all over again, the split is not quite as uh, as as rewarding for us. It's 51% remain, 49% leave. Now that's where we were just in the polls just before the hmm. referendum, of course, and therefore on its own would suggest that we wouldn't necessarily win a second referendum on the merits of staying or leaving. So, uh, how do we square this? First, uh, Professor Grayling, any thoughts? Well, I just want to, yeah, on the fifty-one forty-nine uh, business, uh, I, I think I would now trust that number more than I would in the days immediately after the referendum. You know, that, that the hindsight thing immediately after the referendum, where it looked like it was just a margin of error, and we, we you know, people were saying things that they didn't really mean or something. But the context is different now. Now there's been a lot of information, a lot of debate, uh, and and that number is probably harder than the one nearly two years ago. I suppose we could also hope that of the some of the 49% who say they'd still vote to leave are still saying that, but they're beginning to think, you know, that by, between now and any uh, second referendum that comes along, they might look at figures like the uh, economic impact study we've just been talking about and think, well, I said I'd vote leave, but actually I'll either stay away, which will be an, still be an important factor, mm-hmm. or actually go in and vote to, yeah, to stay. Yeah, this I mean this that... reminds me tremendously, sorry Naomi, of, of uh, what, what happens in an examination committee. When when you look at a student's marks over three years or, or whatever, and you notice that they're getting better and better over time, you begin to talk about exit velocity. You say to yourself, well, where are they ending up? Well, that, that's the degree class that they should get is where they're going to end up. So forget the earlier marks. That's exactly what's happening with these polls. The polls are moving in the right direction if you're one of the people who is likely to sit around this table. So, leave voters, you know how to improve your marks. Great. <laughs> so, um, so, Naomi was going to make yeah, a point. Yeah, well, I, I was just going to say that as, as, as a campaigner, I look at these polls and think, right, okay, well, if, if we are going to have a second referendum, what this says to me is that for Remain, it absolutely becomes a turnout election, uh, even more so than it did last time. And we need that youth quake. Mm. Uh, so, we ought to all be doing that now in the run up to the local elections, making sure that young people are getting registered, uh, staying registered if they move, and, and that sort of thing. So, that if we do need to galvanise them, we've got them ready to go. Well, actually, that's a terribly important point because I think one of the things that will help this continue to surge towards uh, remain on a, on a referendum possibility will be the outcome of the local elections. I think they're rather key from the public opinion point of view and the effect that that would have on, particularly on Labour, if we want to get Labour to move in a sensible direction. So that campaign about getting... Um, People to vote tactically, people to vote Green and, and Lib Dem, but vote for Pro uh, Remain independence as well, maybe. That, I think, is, is really key. So it's a, it's a great point. Well, just before we leave the question of the referendum, you were vocal in questioning the democratic credentials of the referendum we had in 2016. So how sure are you that another referendum is a good idea as a, in general? 
Referendums are terribly bad ideas in, in general, particularly if you can sort of make it up as you go along referendum after referendum. That is changing the franchise, changing who can vote, changing uh, whether or not you have a, a threshold or a supermajority. And in the last four or five referendums in this country, uh, they, they've, they've all been on a different basis, which is scandalous when you think about it. But in a representative democracy, and this is the point we'll come back to in Laborious details soon, I hope. <laughs> um, they, they shouldn't be happening at all. But we're in that uh, game now. And this, I think, is something which our politicians themselves have shown. They are too timid to take the final decision. It looks. They may do. They may do in that uh, substantive vote in the autumn. But it looks as if they, uh, at best, uh, would kick it back to the people. Well, if the people... Uh, are now better informed and have thought about it and have looked into the abyss, maybe we will get a different result. I think Naomi's right about that. It is all looking very strong. I mean, we, we went over some of the sort of the, the changes that we were starting to see, the trend that we were starting to see in support for a referendum on the final deal um, a couple of weeks ago. And we started to say, you know, the crucial part was not saying second referendum, but saying it's a referendum on the final terms and presenting it as now you get to put a stamp on, on the actual detail rather than just the principle of the thing. And I think increasingly the evidence is that that works. Now, this poll, the Guardian poll, is anomalous. But by some distance, it is way, way stronger than anything that we've seen so far. So it does need to be taken with a pinch of salt. But that overall trend does seem to be going in a good direction. And those who have argued that the best course of action for Remainers is to campaign for a referendum on the final term, so far are looking very much like they're being vindicated. So that, that, that we're going back to something we mentioned in the previous thing. Rather than having um, FBPE, Follow Back Pro Europe, on your Twitter feed, you should be putting hashtag final say and say, how can you disagree with having a final say? Hey, I can't so. believe that you're talking about Twitter. It's yeah. the weirdest sorry, thing. Sorry, who, I just, who, I don't, who are you? <laughs> Rhys Mogg was explaining it to me the other day. <laughs> He's only on Instagram. Oh, right. <laughs> and the, the hashtag thing is just, it's not help. I don't, I find all of that just a bit dreadful. So, I mean, I would just avoid it. You go and you make the case and you make the argument and you try and be polite and civilised and you construct yourself in a, in a rational way but with passion and that's the way to do it and I wouldn't worry too much about hashtags. Okay. On to our final news item of the week, a snapshot of Jeremy Corbyn's spiritual journey. It appears that the Labour leader has accepted the idea that we should be in a customs union with Europe, maybe not the customs union, just a customs union, in which we somehow nevertheless have some input on its decisions. The Obi-Wan Kenobi of socialism will convene a Brexit away day later in February, somewhere far from Westminster, possibly the Dune Sea of the planet Tatooine. <laughs> At this away day, he and key shadow cabinet members will, be, will decide whether it's time for a drastic shift on Labour's Brexit policy. Meanwhile, the Labour campaign for the single market, whose members include the MPs Chuka Amuna and Heidi Alexander, have told the party to get off the fence about the single market, and have launched a comprehensive document called Busting the Lexit Myths. Uh, the key issue, is, uh, the Lexit being the justification of Brexit from a left-wing point of view, if you're wonder, wondering what that is. The key issue is, should we have permanent membership of the customs union or a customs union with the EU or just a temporary membership during transition? Ian, uh, are we seeing genuine baby steps towards a policy that two-thirds of Labour voters say they want, which is staying in the EU? It's hard to tell, isn't it? I mean, you look at him on Mar, I thought uh, last Sunday, I mean, he, he said he was quite, he was a bit too explicitly against the second referendum, for my liking. Um, he, he, most of the stuff he said you could just about fit into a sort of new EEA-type agreement. It's clear that definitely under Labour you would have a much, much, much closer relationship than you would have otherwise. 
There is a lot more confidence in the guys within Labour agitating for change against the leadership than there was before. I mean, really, this week has been very, very impressive. We'll hear a clip from an event actually that our producers went to, where you know people are pushing hard. Chukaramuna is pushing hard. Where um, Heidi Alexander was pushing very, very hard. Um, and I think that they're getting somewhere. The customs union stuff is interesting, and it it presents, I think, quite an opportunity specifically for Labour guys. Because their problem before was they got caught up with the sort of customs union and single market being spoken about in the same time. And that put them against the sort of free trade Brexiters and against the anti-immigration Brexiters at the same time, who are really two fundamentally quite different camps. I mean, on the one hand, they shouldn't really have any issue with uh, free with immigration. And on the other, they, the anti-immigration guys don't really care about all these trade deals that Liam Fox wants to do anyway. The customs union thing allowed Labour to split that down the middle and just focus on the customs union stuff, bring up the single market stuff later. But for the purposes of this, you just talk about customs union. It works much better when you're talking about sort of defending manufacturing communities. You start to be able to say things like, well, look, you've got your deal for the city. How come they're getting a deal? But you guys over here aren't getting a deal when it comes to your kind of goods. And it allows this sort of very sharp edge to just penetrate into the debate when you can then bring up other stuff later on. And you've seen the leadership shift with that. I think when you look to what Keir Starmer was saying this week, he was basically saying, yeah, this a customs union we're talking about will share many of the same qualities as the customs union. In other words, it is the same thing with a different name. It is perfectly obvious that's what they mean. And that seems to be the thin end of the wedge to get in there with a bunch of other stuff can follow in through afterwards. So I think we are seeing some quite substantial changes. But again, you've got to ask, how open is the leadership's office to any of these messages? Because when you see John McDonnell come out, when you see Jeremy Corbyn come out, they seem completely unchanged to where they've been over the course of the week. They seem unaffected. They're allowing it to happen. They're allowing the debate to shift that way. But we're still not, from the two guys right at the top, we're still not really seeing any evidence that they've been swayed. I think it's like grandmother's footsteps. Do you remember that game where you take a step forward and then they freeze? Um, and, and it's just sort of painfully, painfully inching along. Um, and so I think what we really need is for the pro-European members in the Labour Party to do what they did with this um, uh, anti-Lexit thing, but to do even more. That's the unions, the MPs and the activists, because the party is still speaking really softly, as you say, on Brexit. Um, and at, at, you know, even worse than that, um, the voices um, of Tony Blair and Chukar Amuna are therefore the loudest for a referendum on the final outcome uh, or a soft after Brexit. And if you've got a Jeremy Corbyn and a John McDonnell figure sitting on a fence around it, those are the sorts of voices that will push them off the other bloody side mm. and not towards where we need them to be. Mm. So if, if uh, they have this away day and they decide basically to move Labour towards being in favour of staying in the EU, in, 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 of not doing Brexit, are we sure that's an outright vote winner for Labour? No, but I don't think that there's any suggestion that they would be moving to that position at all. I mean, the most they're going to move to is a much closer relationship to the EU while still doing Brexit. I mean, there's no one, not even Chukaramona, I don't think, in, in, is actually saying that we would try and stay in the EU. So I think we're, we're well away from that. Of course, the other part is the second referendum stuff. And then those arguments can be activated and come out. But uh, I don't know of any prominent Labour figure in the Labour Party, in the Parliamentary Party, who's, who's calling for Remain So remaining essentially itself. they were going to let, the referendum, uh, let the referendum do it is the best that we, we, we can hope from them is, is that they will back That would be my current reading. You never know how quickly things will shift. I think the next nine months are going to be big, big months. This is the business end of this entire process is these months and you're watching the Conservative Party drive itself completely insane. It's tearing off its own skin as the reality of what is happening starts coming down upon it. That was a very strange mixed metaphor <laughs> I just came up with. I'm not entirely sure that I enjoyed visualising it. But nevertheless, in that sort of thing, you might see Labour's position becoming a bit more radical. I've heard something different, uh, actually, from people like Chukar and, and others in the party, that they are Remainers. And what they're trying to do is they're trying 
by means of grandmother's footsteps to get the leadership closer and closer to a position where it becomes possible to say, let's just stay in the EU. So that, that's... I don't doubt that for a minute that that's what they really think. I just mean, in terms of what they're willing to come out and say, none of them are Oh, that's that's right. So that, that I think, is the important point, Ian, because whenever you listen to politicians talking, first question you've got to ask yourself is, who is this addressed to? Who are they talking to using this kind of language? So... um, you know, there is a big anxiety on the part of the Labour leadership about those people who abandoned them for UKIP uh, a little while mm. ago, and they're thinking about northern constituencies. And so the rhetoric uh, uh, associated with that hasn't shifted very much. But what you're seeing, I think, when you meet and talk to people inside the party who are on the Remain wing of the party, you're seeing them saying, look, you know, we really have to approach this in a step-by-step way. We've, we've got to shift if it's centimetre by centimetre, uh, Corbyn and McDonnell. And, you know, very important figure lurking in the background of all this is the old Wickhamist Balliol, ex-Balliol, son of the Director General of the BBC, <laughs> a very working class figure of Seamus Milne. Who uh, will never know, be shifted. <laughs> <laughs> who, who is, uh, you know, perhaps the hardest Brexiter yes. in the whole mob. Yes. And so the question is, what's going on in, in those discussions? And you have to remember that there were there were lots of very troubling rumours about the nature of the split in the Labour Party itself. So, for example, just before the last election last year, I was talking to a, a top BBC journalist who said, who said the following. He said, the rumour is that the Corbyn office and the Parliamentary Labour Party are on different planets. And the Corbyn office really would quite like to lose this election quite badly because it would clear out a lot of people uh, whose seats they want to refill with uh, true believers. Mm. Scorched earth strategy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, because yeah. the latest ICM poll shows that, in spite of all of the uh, open trench warfare on the Conservative benches, actually Conservatives and Labour are level pegging at forty-one percent. So that does not mean that Jeremy Corbyn is about to march into into Downing Street. So presumably somewhere in between, uh, on on the Labour side, in between arguing over Brexit, they will have noticed that they're not really getting anywhere. How is, that, how is that going to affect them? Think? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a scandal that, that Labour aren't way ahead of the Conservatives in the polls at the moment. And I think it's because of this terrible drag anchor on, on mm. Brexit that they're not coming out. They've got a very clear policy. This business about a customs union so on is a, is a palpable load of nonsense. It's fudging <laughs> like mad, you know. Uh, and if they were to come out, they just said, look, actually, this is a disaster. It would be a disaster. We're not going to do it. It's going to hurt our people worse. So we're just going to go for remain, I think they would they would leap ahead in the moment. Indeed. So we were talking about earlier about the um, launch by the Labour campaign for the single market, Jukaramuna and Haile Alexander and so on, uh, launch of an anti-Lexit dossier. Well, our producer, Andrew Harrison, went along. Uh, the guest speaker, Yanis Varoufakis, told a packed room that there was a chance to reclaim Brexit as a progressive opportunity to take our country back and remake Britain and Europe as fairer and more democratic places. Andrew grabbed him afterwards in a very noisy Commons corridor and asked him, how on earth do you reclaim Brexit from the Brexiters? Not from the Brexiteers, mm-hmm. from the establishment and the Brexiteers and everybody who's working towards diminishing our communities and our society. Well, how do we sell it to people who are in the centre? You don't have to speak the, the, the wooden language of, of your. What you have to do is to say to them, do you want your country back? That's what you voted Brexit for, yeah? Okay, so let, let's, let's talk about it. How are you going to get your country back? By empowering figures like Boris Johnson? and forging a trade uh, 
um, deals with Donald Trump on the basis of TTIP and secret tribunals that prevent your National Health Service from doing the things that you want to do? Is this the way you will get your, hand, your country back? No, it's not. So let's talk about an alternative. And then you don't talk to them about single markets. I'm against the idea of talking about the single market. You talk about the opportunities for uh, the, the House of Commons um, debating future arrangements that the Norway-style agreement offers. So you, you, you have to do the hard work of debating the issues and not getting stuck in uh, you know, the, the wooden language of all politics. You've been hearing him throughout the show. Our guest this week is A.C. Grayling, the philosopher, author and master of the New College of the Humanities. His books include Liberty in the Age of Terror and Ideas That Matter. He's vice president of the British Humanist Association and for many years he was a fellow of the World Economic Forum. Last year he published Democracy and Its Crisis. Uh, Professor Grayling, it's great to have an actual public intellectual lending respectability to our anti-democratic conspiracy. Should we be be honest with ourselves here? Is Brexit really a crisis of democracy or just a democratic? result that we're, 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 we don't like, basically. Well, we certainly don't like it. But I, I do think it is a crisis in democracy because if you look at what happened both here in the EU referendum campaign and vote and you look at what happened in the United States of America with the Trump election, obviously some, something is going on. The most obvious thing is that uh, social media, the use of data that can be harvested from social media and the techniques of hyper-targeting, which uh, big data analytics now able to... Uh, uh, help with this is this is the targeting of extremely well sculpted messages to very very precisely defined little groups of people so you can aggregate lots of little groups who may have nothing in common with one another otherwise and you can tip the balance in any referendum style or presidential election style vote whether it's an either or one or not in or out uh, you've always got a, a group of people in the middle who haven't made their minds up or who don't know what to think or who are manipulable And these techniques, these social media techniques, have, I think, proved very powerful uh, just recently in moving things in in a direction which is, in the most basic uh, and clearest of terms, undemocratic. So, for example, in the case of the Trump election... Hillary Clinton got about three million more votes in the in the popular vote than Trump did, but the uh, votes that were targeted by these techniques are aimed at getting the electoral college uh, votes, and Trump is now in in the White House. The Electoral College, by the way, exists to make sure that very unsuitable people don't get into the White House, and so it failed on that point uh, comprehensively. In our own case, we know there have been, I think, some brilliant investigative journalism by Carol Cadwallader on The Observer about the work done by Cambridge Analytica, who, by the way, uh, were players in both the Trump and the EU referendum thing. And there is an indication there that we have to think very carefully about how we're going to handle the fact that social media has now opened up a tremendous opportunity for people to have an influence on outcomes of elections and referendums if they remain uh, opaque to us. Uh, It's going to happen, but we need it to be transparent because if we know who's sending us messages, why they're sending them, who's paying for them, then we can make our own mind up if we agree. I'm glad to hear you said this. One of the run- running jokes we have on the podcast is that I don't do Twitter and Facebook, and I think they're all Satan, basically. So I'm glad. <laughs> Essentially, your your argument supports <laughs> mine. Let's That's try. True. Let's I mean, try- AC Grading never uses Twitter. He uses no. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but was, uh, let me try and construct a, sl- a sort of counter argument, which is that um, these are just tools, new tools that have, they clearly work in. They're clearly very useful in certain ways, and we simply have to adjust 
our expectation, we being the public in, as a whole, to understand that when you start receiving messages, we need to be more astute about stuff that gets fired at us on Facebook and Twitter and so on, and account for the fact that this may not be this this may be propaganda, it may not be factual news, that the sources may 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 not check out and so on. That it's simply we we may have a painful period of adjustment that event, but eventually we'll learn to live with all this. That's mm-hmm. that's the counter argument. That that's think true. Of. That's true. But there are two things to be said about it. One is that it reprises a very 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 old argument about political processes, an argument that goes back as far as Plato. Now, I know you were reading uh, Book 10 of the Republic by Plato last night, so of course, uh, in your bar. <laughs> so you'll remember what he says there about if you put final political authority in the hands of the demos of the people, what are you going to get is anarchy, disagreement, conflict, um, p- people who have insufficient information, who haven't thought things through, who are ignorant and so on. He was very, very down on, on the, the idea of, of handing over any kind of political authority to, to the people. Now, he's wrong about that. that. That kind of condescending view is a mistake. People are not stupid, but it could be that on crucial matters, sometimes people are not sufficiently well informed. I mean, after all, Churchill famously said, all this stuff about uh, democracy, the second point was that, you know, the strongest argument against it is two minutes conversation with any voter, precisely targeting that (laughs) that problem about whether they really know enough. The point that you just made says, okay, uh, social media is a fact, we're going to be targeted with messaging, so we need to be very good at evaluating those messages. We need to be informed. That's why it's the old problem about are people sufficiently well informed. So on the one hand, you have to argue that if we are going to live in a democracy, you can't uh, say to people, well, you're not only entitled to have the vote if you're sufficiently well informed or educated or something. No. If you're a citizen of the country, you're entitled to a vote. But what you're also entitled to, and this is the second right that you have, is a right to good enough government. And I use that phrase rather than good government because, you know, outside this yeah. room, nothing is perfect. OK, so uh, the, the uh, idea there is that you have to have institutions and practices which can parlay or take the overall uh, view that the, the, the voters come up with in all the variety of their opinions and desires and translate that into government that works for everybody, which protects minority interests and which really looks at the interests of the country. So it's not just the fact that we now have this new very, very powerful and very easily manipulable tool in social media. But what, what these two recent events have shown is that our, our institutions have themselves been uh, uh, manipulated wrongly. For example, in the United Kingdom, the executive is drawn from the legislature, the majority party in the legislature. That makes it practically impossible for the legislature to hold the executive to account. So the House of Commons is just the creature of the government of the day. And the whipping system, the party machine system, which also operates against democracy in the United States of America, results in just... Uh, um, partisan politics results in partisan government that is a a small group of people with a small minority in the House of Commons on not very much more than a third of the popular vote in the country can get an agenda through which doesn't really reflect the interests of everybody and if uh, Brexit isn't an example of that an example of what is in all effect a coup by a group of people who happen to have their hands on the levers at the moment. I don't know what is. And that is something, therefore, that we've got to address. But how do we get, how do we answer your, your two desires there, it seems to me? You have one desire is that you don't want a sort of 
chaotic um, plebiscite democracy, if you like, where everything's put to a vote. On the other hand, you don't want the extreme kind of um, parliamentary whip version of democracy that we in practice have in, in Britain. Um, apart from a bit of fine tuning, is there a is there a magic third way? Well, the magic way actually is just to get uh, what, what, what our democracy is meant to be like to work. And there are some relatively simple things that you can do. What, what one is that you can you can try to weaken the whipping system, the the party machine system. You can um, you you could go further than that and say actually the executive ought to be independent of the legislature. Now that's the case in the United States of America, but there, the way the institutions have been set up means that unless there's bipartisanship, what you get is paralysis, and we've just seen that recently with the U.S. Uh, not having a budget. But you can, if you um, require of members of parliament that they do their duty, in fact, they sign up to this, they're meant to represent their constituents and the interests of the country and not the party line. But at the moment, that's what they represent. Mm. See, ours is a representative democracy. That's the key word. And they're meant to be, they're they're not delegates. They're not messenger boys and girls. They're meant to be going, getting the facts, listening to argument, Mm. discussing coming to a judgment and acting on that judgment and not being just being told by the executive of the day how they're to vote. So one could clean that up and I think that would be a, a big step towards having more effective government. Of course, I would argue that we need to change the voting system and that would be uh, a, a more effective way or as an effective way of, of trying to sort of break up this sort of two-party dominant system Absolutely, that we've got I agree and be much that. more representative. You need, you need, pro- you need pro- more proportional system of representation. Yeah. You also need to make voting compulsory, I think, as it is in Belgium. Oh, no, no, Australia. no, 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 yes. no, 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 no. That part we can't have at yes, all. Yes, you no, can. No. It is a civic duty, like paying your taxes and driving on the agreed side you, you of the road. Have the abi- civic you must have the ability to not give your consent to the system. And by you, forcing you can spoil your ballot, you can well, spoil no, your ballot. I'm sorry, but if we were to have the police come over to someone's house and say well, you've got to go vote now, that is not a kind of freedom. Your freedom is you don't want to partake. You don't have to partake. If you do want to partake, you do. But that seems to me like a terrible encroachment on people's civil liberties. I think not, at all. not at all. There's a practical it is that. problem is that countries like Australia and Brazil, I think, uh, have compulsory in practice. It doesn't. It's never. It's never enforceable. Yeah. It's a nice idea, and and you know, I I would edge towards Professor Grayling's view that you can vote against the system by go- going in and write fuck, fuck the system on your ballot paper um, but I just don't think it's just, it's like it's hard enough to, to argue for the but BBC license the system has marched you to the polling station which is an outrageous I'm sorry I'm sorry that's nonsense it's like saying that, you know that the tax authorities will come and arrest you and they'll march you to the post office so you can pay your taxes and so okay. on. And I think, I think it is a civic duty and people should be expected to do it. And if it becomes a civic duty, it will wake people up and make them mm-hmm. think a little bit more about how they use this thing, which, by the way, took one hell of a long time to get to the vote and people spilled blood to get it. And it is a travesty that now people can be so cavalier about it. As this man sitting next to me is being... <laughs> <laughs> you really need to yes. see I think, this as... I think, we can, I think we can all agree that a lot more needs to to be done to get that message across to people is that you know you, people have died for you to get the vote. People in other countries are still dying to get the vote that you 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 are just throwing away. And it mm. and it's been a hundred years since women got the vote, and it's time to extend the franchise to sixteen and seventeen year olds. Yeah. And uh, on, on the subject of all this, um, uh, you know that uh, a lot of the 
big uh, steps towards democracy, uh, you know, from getting rid of slavery to votes for him, I think they were actually all pushed through by members of the liberal metropol metropolitan elite, were they not? Yes, and, as as they another point that we can yeah. get across is that actually, because you know, it's been a very powerful piece of rhetoric for the Brexit side, that anyone who opposes them is the liberal metropolitan mm. elite. But the point is, the liberal metropolitan elite ain't such a bad thing. Uh, but for some reason, that argument gets lost in the wash. <laughs> Don't know why, but it does. I've always oh. been rather fond of them myself. Pass the Kool-Aid, I think. Yes, I'm indeed, yes. 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 I mean, what I was going to ask, really, is just what, what, the point, what was the point, I suppose, that you just decided that this is, you know, that fighting Brexit was going to be something that you were going to dedicate yourself to? Because there's obviously, I mean, sort of watching you from before the referendum, most of your public sort of statements were on more sort of august, sort of philosophical, abstract matters. And then there was clearly the vote. And I mean, was there really a moment where you just sort of sat there and thought, right, that's it. Now I'm, I'm, I'm going to dedicate myself to taking this thing on? Or was it a sort of gradual process? Oh, pretty well. I mean, I think probably about sort of 9am on 24th of June 2016, <laughs> where, when I, I, having looked down the neck of a whiskey bottle and thought, where do I move to? You know, Italy is always going to be something like that. This just won't do. This absolutely won't do. We've got to oppose it because it is a really bad mistake. So do you consider Remain to be a moral cause as a philosopher? Very much so, yeah. yeah. Very, yeah. very much so. Because, of course, we, we've been talking economics and we've been talking mm. uh, about people losing their jobs and, and the, the overall impact on our society, the attrition mm. uh, on a society of the effect of poverty. And that is a moral matter. Mm. There's no question about it. I'm 100% with Aristotle, who said that ethics and politics are the same thing. Yeah. But there is also the other side of this, which is very little talked about, and that is that, to me, you know, when I was a kid, I spent my very early childhood in bang in the middle of Africa with no TV or anything else. So when people say, where did you live when you were a kid? I say, well, in ancient Greece and Rome. You know, that's what I was reading about all the time. And so I've always felt uh, a European. And it surprises me when people don't realize how much we share with the rest of Europe culturally. You listen to music or look at paintings or read great literature. All those things matter. It belongs to all of us. We're all part of that story. And we've contributed a huge amount to that story. But also, just go on YouTube, look at images of Europe in 1945, and think to yourself, my God, isn't it amazing how all the nations of Europe have come together and produced something which is so remarkable. Great, great imaginative enterprise of peace and of unity mm. and of progress. Of course, it's got its flaws and difficulties and problems. Any, any big endeavor like that would have. But it is a, it's a magnificent idealistic uh, endeavor. I, I love it. Look at, uh, go on YouTube and look at images of Britain in the 1970s. Look at rubbish tips and strikes mm. and God knows what else and the way that our economy was tanking then and the, 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 the kind of rather banal brown colored um, society that, that it was producing. Mm. And think of what's happened since then, how we flourished. Talking about being informed and thinking. That's what people ought to do. Those stories, those images should be enough to make people think, what the hell are we doing giving up on not being a leading partner in something which is as big as this? I'd, I'd really like to ask you a quick question about religion and voting patterns. Um, why do you think it is that Anglicans were so supportive of Leave versus um, other faith groups and, and those of no faith? Absolutely. Is it simply an age thing that Anglicans tend to be in the 65 plus category? Or is there also something around Protestantism and that dislike of centralised power in Europe? Um, because if there is, then that might be something we want to tap into as campaigners ahead of a, another referendum. Uh, well, Anglicanism is not really a religion it's just organized 
Yeah, well, it's just organised nostalgia is what it is, really. And, of course, most, most Ang- Anglicans are quite literally of the C of E variety, that is Christmas and Easter. And it, it's uh, things associated with that. <laughs> Old ladies on bicycles in the countryside. You know, the sort of images you see on the front cover of Agatha Christie books, not the murders all, inside. Or liberal metropolitan elites on their knees to avoid school fees. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yes, so, so I, I think I think the the connection, if there is one, is is the nostalgia connection, the good old days, empire, England as it was, England, notice, not Britain, uh, and um, well, with any luck, uh, both Anglicanism and the Leave demographic will be departing together. So we've had this, um, not just in Britain, obviously in America as well, we've had this tide of populism, nationalism. We've had Poland, Hungary, India even. There have been a few counterexamples like France and Austria and so on. Um, some people think you know, that we're now very much going backwards. We're lurching back towards populist authoritarianism uh, around the world and we, we can't sort of stop this. Are you that pessimistic or, or, or is this like a backlash before another leap forward? Uh, I hope it's the latter, and I'm more inclined to think that it is the latter, because there is something interestingly complex about the phenomenon that we're witnessing, because you're right that there does seem to be a kind of populist upsurge. But I think two things need to be said about it. One is that every economy at every point in its history is going through a transition. Economies are always transiting from one phase to to the next. And therefore, there are always people who are being left behind. Now, with automation and robotics and what have you, we're seeing this really pressing, certainly on certain industries, like the car manufacturing industry, let's say. But when uh, um, people are being left behind by a transition in a period of great inequality, and what we've seen is a huge increase in inequality between people on middle and lower incomes and people on uh, high incomes, not just since 2008, but I think over the last quarter of a century or more. And inequality in a society is very, very toxic. It causes a huge amount of anger and resentment and frustration and and desire to get back at the people who uh, have the money, the fat cats and the metropolitan elites and so on. Now, that is a, a, a situation ripe for demagoguery. You see, populism is not a grassroots upswelling just by itself. Uh, well, very, very rarely is it. Because p- people who are out of work, people in poverty, people who are struggling from day to day, are not really in a great position to organize and to theorize. But when you get demagogues to come along and say, you're in, you're in trouble, aren't you? I know who's causing the trouble. It's the EU it's or them. it's immigrants, it's them. So you, you vote for me or you follow me and I'll solve your problem. Now, of course, demagogues never do solve anybody's problem. They tend to get them into wars and so on. But that, that's how it works. So when you look around the world and you look at India, what do you see? You see this whole Hindutva thing and the BJP. Mm. You look at, at Marine Le Pen or Gert Wilders or Nigel Farage. They're, they're, they are making use of, of the distress that people are feeling amplified by this tremendous inequality in our society. Uh, and um, the, the, the result is a, a lot of shockwaves in the society. And the thing is that the populists, uh, there's an asymmetry. The populists are offering certainty. That's what people are striving for, some sort of certainty. And we as kind of anti-populists, um, you know, prefer to live in the real world. And, you know, ever since Heisenberg, we've realised that, you know, the universe is hardwired with uncertainty. And it's beneath us, in a sense, to pretend to give false certainties. How do we fix that? If, if the other side of the argument is offering these comforting certainties and we feel that's wrong to do, 
how do we win the argument? Well, do you know, I, I think it is a very high duty of government to be extremely alert to stress areas in, mm. in our society and in the economy and to be very uh, active about it. You know, they should have, we should really always be thinking about which sectors of the economy, which, which parts of the population who in, in our society are, are not uh, being able to keep up or who are suffering because of some changes in the structure of the economy and working to address it. And I think that's kind of been lost. And it's been lost primarily, I suppose, because austerity just takes away the resources for doing that properly. And that made things worse in these last few years. I have a final question. Which philosopher, if any, would have voted Brexit? Famous philosopher. Historically, yeah, historically, not currently. Heidegger. Huh. Any others? Well, Heidegger was a member of the Nazi party. That's why we <laughs> were choosing him. <laughs> I, I think I think all other philosophers are just far too rational to have ever dreamt of voting leave. <laughs> and on that um, on, on that deep thought, that's the end of this week's show. Many thanks to Professor A.C. Grayling for coming in and joining us. Uh, that's a whole hour without tweeting. I hope you've managed without it. <laughs> thanks as ever to <laughs> Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. And it's a very sad episode of Romaniacs because we're saying goodbye to our founding producer, Matt Hall. If only I thought you meant it. Yeah, the man with the laugh. There he goes. Matt's, Matt's been scooped up by the giants of Big Podcast Inc. and he's leaving us for an actual job with real money. So who says Brexit's bad for employment? Eh? Matt's been a rock for the show and we couldn't have done it without him. Thanks very much, Matt. Have you any farewell words for the listeners? Uh, just keep on keeping on because... Uh you're going to do brilliant next year, I know it. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Well, it won't be the same without you. So, uh, helping to improve your word power now with our Euro language sign off. It's this week is in Portuguese and it's Beth McLaughlin. Boa sorte em para o Brexit, Grã-Bretanha. And now, as usual, here are legends of cosmopolitan pop corner shop to play us out with Demon is a Monster, our theme tune, available now on all download stores and Spotify. And here comes our traditional roll call of Patreon supporters. See you next week. Okay, first up, it's a very special thanks to a significant benefactor, Stephen Kinsella. Uh, your generosity is very much appreciated, sir, and uh, we hope we'll see you at Romaniacs Live, where the EU-approved drinks are on us. Thanks also to Andrew Wood, Nick Patience, Dan Cuthill, Henry Epsom, and Gary Thorpe. And it's thanks from me to Sheena Solansky, Charles Williams, Rice David, or is that David Rice? Either way, thank you very much. Daniel O'Brien and Luke Ritchie. And it's a big shout out from me to Mark Easton. I wonder if that's the famous Mark Easton of the Tally Who Express. It could be, yes, it could be. Uh, I've never known. Ben O'Neill, E.T. Thomas, Robin Richardson, and John McGinley. <laughs> Romaniacs was presented by Peter Collins with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The producers were Andrew Harrison and me, Matt Hall. The Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Bye bye, Matt. Bye bye, bye, bye. bye Matt. <laughs> <laughs>